Good morning, everyone. Grace and peace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This will be the second last sermon uh, for the book of Esther. Uh, next Sunday, uh, Pastor Boon Seng has kindly agreed uh, to close our series on the book of Esther. And then following on four Sundays, during the four Sundays of Advent, we will have another series, uh, a short topical series on rethinking church. So do look out uh, for it. Esther, chapter 3, verse 13. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instruction to destroy, kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Ada, and to plunder their goods. This edict was published on the 13th day of the first month, which is the month of Nisan, the month the Jews celebrated the Passover. That great Jewish festival would have been a subdued affair that particular year. It would have taken great faith for any Jew to recite the usual words over the four ritual cups of the Passover. I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians, I will rescue you from your slavery. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people and I will be your God. I wonder if the Jews were struck dumb by grief and horror, finding it extremely hard to utter those divine promises. The months leading up to their annihilation would have been pure agony and torture for any Jew. Unexpectedly, on the 23rd day of the third month, which is the month of seven, against all odds, a great reversal took place. Esther chapter 8, verse 11 and 12. The king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods. One, on one day, throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Ada, In nearly identical language, Mordecai's edict overturned Haman's decree. The opposite happened. The reverse occurred. The tables were turned. Eleven months after Haman had first cast lots for the destruction of the Jews, that fateful day finally arrived. Esther chapter 9, verse 1 to 19. As I read, follow along with me in your own Bibles. Esther chapter 9, verse 1. Now in the twelfth month, which is the month of Ada. On the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be 
carried out on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them. The reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm. And no one could stand against them, for the fear of them had fallen on all peoples. All the officials of the provinces and the satraps and the governors and the royal agents also helped the Jews, for the fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. For Mordecai was great in the king's house, and his fame spread throughout all the provinces. For the man Mordecai grew more and more powerful. The Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and did as they pleased to those who hated them. In Susa, the citadel itself, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men, and also killed Pashadatta and Delphon and Asparta and Porata and Adalia and Aridatta and Pamashta and Arisai and Aridai and Vizata. The ten sons of Haman, the son of Hamedatta, the enemy of the Jews, but they laid no hand on the plunder. The very day, the number of those killed in Susa, the citadel, was reported to the king. And the king said to Queen Esther, In Susa, the citadel, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men and also the ten sons of Haman. What then have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now, what is your wish? It shall be granted you. And what further is your request? It shall be fulfilled. And Esther said, If it please the king, let the Jews who are in Susa be allowed tomorrow also to do according to this day's edict, and let the ten sons of Haman be hanged on the gallows. So the king commanded this to be done. A decree was issued in Susa, and the ten sons of Haman were hanged. The Jews who were in Susa gathered also on the 14th day of the month of Adar, and they killed 300 men in Susa, but they laid no hands on the plunder. Now the rest of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also gathered to defend their lives and got relief from their enemies and killed 75,000 of those who hated them, but they laid no hands on the plunder. This was on the 13th day of the month of Adar, and on the 14th day they rested and made that a day of feasting and gladness. But the Jews who were in Susa gathered on the 13th day and on the 14th, and they rested on the 15th day, making that day, that a day of feasting and gladness. Therefore, the Jews of the villagers who live in the rural towns hold the 14th day of the month of Adar as a day of gladness and feasting, as a holiday, and as a day on which they send gifts of food to one another. The author of the book of Esther interprets the events of that fateful day as holy war. Let me point out three evidences for this. First, there was the fear that fell on all peoples. Now, 
Remember this, prior to the conquest of Canaan, Rahab said this to the two spies, Joshua chapter 2, verse 9. I know that the Lord has given you this land, and a great fear of you has fallen on us, so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. Similar words were used in the book of Esther. And many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. Chapter 8, verse 17. Again, and no one could stand against them for the fear of them had fallen on all peoples. Chapter 9, verse 2. You see, fear gripped the nations prior to the conquest of the Holy Land. Fear now gripped the peoples of the country prior to the carrying out of Mordecai's edict. One evidence of holy war. Here's the second one. There was the command to completely eradicate the Amalekites. You all know this. Exodus chapter 17, verse 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this on a scroll as something to be remembered and make sure that Joshua hears it because I will completely blot out the name of Amalek from under heaven. This was carried out in the book of Esther. Haman, a descendant of Amalek, was executed. So were his ten sons, individually named in verses 7 to 9. As God has promised, the name of Amalek or Agag or any of their descendants was completely blotted out, never to be mentioned again in the Bible. They were proper casualties of holy war. Here's the third evidence. Third, there was this one rule of ancient holy war. Joshua chapter 6, verse 18 but keep away from the devoted things so that you will not bring about your own destruction by taking any of them. Otherwise, you will make the camp of Israel liable to destruction and bring trouble on it. Achan took some of the devoted things at Jericho. Remember that? Later, King Saul did the same in his war against the Amalekites. Holy war, as I mentioned last Sunday, was God's war against wickedness. It wasn't and never has been the opportunity to enrich oneself. Three times this was said of the Jews in the book of Esther in chapter 9. They laid no hands on the plunder. Chapter 9, verse 10, verse 15, and verse 16. There was to be no personal profit from holy war. Three evidences. The author of the book of Esther sees what happened on that fateful day and recognizes it as holy war. However, the event of Jesus Christ, the perfect holy warrior, has changed everything. Our better grounds have shifted. What are Christians fighting against today? I mentioned this last Sunday. We are fighting against Satan, fighting against sin, and of course, fighting against self. Our fight is now against the root of evil itself. For this morning, 
as we consider the day of battle, as Christians face the day of battle, as you step out into the world every day and know that you are in the midst of battle, on the day of battle, as we engage our real enemies, let us not forget this. The war is already won. We must remember this. It will determine everything. Whatever troubles you face, against Satan, against sin, against self, you must remember this. The war is already won. Even before the arrival of the 13th day of the 12th month, the survival of the Jewish people was already a settled outcome. In the third month, when the counter-edict was published, the Jews had light and gladness and joy and honour. Chapter 8, verse 16. They, there were gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday, even before that day arrived. Chapter 8, verse 17. They celebrated as if they had already won the battle. On the fateful day itself, the author simply declares this. When the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. Chapter 9, verse 1. The outcome was already determined. What followed were merely details. Fear descended on all peoples. Even the VIPs of the kingdom feared the Jews, offering them their support. They struck down, the Jews struck down 75,000 of their enemies in the provinces, another 800 in Susa over two days. For the Jews, Beginning from the third month, the 23rd day onward, they're already celebrating. We have won. The dominance of the Jews is most clearly reflected in these words, in the ascendancy of Mordecai. Uh, verse 4, For Mordecai was great in the king's house, and his fame spread throughout all the provinces. For the man Mordecai grew more and more powerful. Christians today have someone even better. Behold, something greater than Mordecai is here. Psalm 110 verse 1 to 3 says this, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit in a place of honour at my right hand until I humble your enemies, making them a footstool under your feet. The Lord will extend your powerful kingdom from Jerusalem. You will rule over your enemies. When you go to war, your people will serve you willingly. This refers to Jesus Christ. In fact, the Lord Jesus himself quoted this. Question the religious leaders, asking them, who is David's son? Why is this said of David's son? Mordecai was great in the king's house, but Jesus was great in God's house. 
Mordecai warned one better for the Jews, but Jesus warned the war for all humanity. Mordecai grew more and more powerful, but Jesus is all-powerful. When we go to war, let us remember these rousing words of our commander-in-chief. He said this before he left his disciples. In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. I need to say, let me say this again. In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. What our Lord is saying is that trouble will follow you. You still need to fight. But triumph will have the final word. Trouble may hurt you, but it is no longer a mortal wound. You will recover. With the Lord, you will grow from strength to strength. The war is already won. Romans chapter 8, verse 37. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. The Jews were confident of victory on that day because Mordecai grew more and more powerful, second in command after the king. But today, we have Jesus seated at the right hand of God, far greater, far more powerful than any man. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. Ours isn't a close victory. Ours isn't even a good victory. Ours is an overwhelming victory. That is what we have in Jesus Christ, an overwhelming victory. You know, it is like a football game where one team is winning by an unassailable margin. The second half is about to begin. There is excitement in the changing room. There is no talk of giving up. There's no talk of losing. There's no talk of anyone walking out on the game. There is only eagerness to play the second half. Everybody is raising up their hand and say, uh, pick me for the second half, pick me for the second half. I want to play in the second half, but only 11 players can play in a football game. All of us know that. There's only eagerness to play the second half because they are winning by an unassailable margin. That's what it's like to play on Jesus' team. We can't lose. With Jesus on our team, our victory is assured. So I can't understand why Jesus' team has so few willing players today. I can't understand. Why do Christians hesitate playing for Jesus? Or should I say serving Jesus? What's the hesitation for? Why do they prefer sitting on the substitute's bench? Or should I say church pews? Why do they get so frantic when caught to the playing field? Or should I say mission field. What are you afraid of? Losing? 
But I already say we can't lose. The war is already won. It is an overwhelming victory. The Bible calls us more than conquerors. What are you afraid of? Self-doubt. First John chapter 4, verse 4 says this, He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. He is not with you merely. He's, merely, he's not in front of you. He's not behind you. He's not close to you or near you. He is in you. Satan may be playing on the other team, but we have Jesus. What are you afraid of? Feeling inadequate? 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 5 and say, verse 5 and 6 say this. Not that we are competent in ourselves to claim anything for ourselves, but our competence comes from God. He has made us competent as ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. Do you believe this? He has made us competent. So whenever, you, whenever someone invites you to serve and you say, I can't do it because I'm not competent, you are saying Jesus is a liar. Hear this again. He has made us competent as ministers of the new covenant. You are spiritually sealed and qualified. Can't you see the scoreboard? It is going to be the biggest win in the history of wars. What are you waiting for, brothers and sisters? Enlist in Jesus' team. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Step forward and serve willingly. This morning, there's an inv invitation to join the CHC team. What are we waiting for? Those of you who are available, those of you who have already been gifted by God, competent in some way or other, step forward, find out, is there a place for me there that I can begin to serve the children in a coming camp? The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Step forward and serve willingly. Be part of the team that fight the good fight. The war is already won. Nevertheless, we need still to remember this, that the war must still be waged. The Bible is very realistic. Very, very realistic. It tells you the truth, the war is already won, but yet it is real. It tells you that in the midst, while you are living in this world, the war must still be waged. For many battles are still ongoing. All of us know this. Some of you are even fighting right now. Some of you may have a break, but it's just over a break, You're, you know what's going to happen next, soon. Maybe just around the corner, maybe next year, you do not know. There's still fierce fighting ahead of us. Every Christian is a soldier. The church of Jesus Christ comprises no civilians. We don't get entangled in the affairs of this world. We live to please our commander-in-chief. There is no running away from battle. All of us will get it. You know, remember the Jews were celebrating earlier already? On the third month, when the counter-edict was published, they were already celebrating a feast, a holiday. They were already, already celebrating. But there's still war ahead, you know. 
the 13th day of the 12th month didn't just disappear, no? They still must fight. What then is needed in a fight? Let me suggest three things. First is preparation. The counter, the counter edict that was issued in every province and publicly displayed to all peoples was to get the Jews ready on that day to take vengeance on their enemies. Chapter 8, verse 13. To get them ready. The Jews had nine months to prepare, to work out strategies, to erect defences, to identify potential enemies, to stock up weapons. On a day, they took the sword and struck down their enemies. The sword must come from some place. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3 and 5 says this about Christians. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of this world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Two strongholds are identified here. Human reasoning, human rebellion. Human reasoning and human rebellion. Special weapons are needed to tear down such strongholds. You know, previously in my last sermon, I mentioned the armour of God. Now, most of these armour pieces are put on and then left on. Uh, the helmet, the breastplate, the belt, uh, the shoes. But two of them are handheld. They witness the most action on the battlefield. There's the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. You see, the Word of God is our offensive weapon. Good preparation means learning to handle the Word of God correctly and accurately. Just as if you pick up the sword, you need to learn how to wield the sword to be effective. Similarly with the Word of God, you need to learn how to handle it. You need to learn how to study it. You need to learn how to pick up right things, accurate things from it. The Word of God equips us to demolish cunning lies, false teachings, and deceitful thoughts. They are going out all around us. Jesus himself said, beware, the days are coming when there will be false prophets, false teachers, false Christ." What will help us during those days? The Word of God. The better you know the Word of God, the better you are able to go on the offensive and refute people or things or institutions that promote falsehoods. Then there's also the shield of faith. Faith is our defensive weapon. The Bible says in Ephesians chapter 6, with it you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. We are fighting against Satan. And here it is, the shield of faith. Extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Good preparation means growing deep in our faith. 
we walk by faith, not by sight. Faith equips us to deal with the unseen realities that lie behind what is seen. We need faith in Jesus to fight the good fight. Faith is to be sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. Faith tells us the war is already won and you step out boldly, courageously, unafraid. That's what faith do. Faith says the one who is in you is greater than the one that is in the world. So you step forward again and you face the better. Faith tells you you are more than conquerors. So you go forward, conquer, overcome, gain the victory for the sake of the name of Jesus Christ. Good preparation in word and faith is necessary and crucial. You know, the freedom in Christ cause is good preparation. Ours is a better for the truth. Ours is a better for the hearts and minds of men and women. This course is conducted pretty regularly. Look out for news of the next run. I believe an, an, a run was just recently started on the 8th of November. Being part of a small group is also good preparation. You meet together. You receive instruction from the Lord through the diligent study of His Word. You learn to study the Word together. You learn to wield the Word together. You pray for one another, encouraging one another in the faith. You spur one another to stand firm in the Lord. You tell one another, don't give up. We are winning. We will win. We are more than overcomers. You spur one another. You encourage one another. Preparation. Many other preparations. So what preparation are you currently undergoing to equip yourself to fight the good fight? You want to win big, win well, you need to prepare. Secondly, Next is place. Mordecai said to Esther, For you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. God has a better plan. He deploys His troops accordingly. He places them exactly where they should be. Remember this from 1 Corinthians chapter 12? But in fact, God has placed the parts in the body, every one of them, just as He wanted them to be. Esther was where God wanted her to be, to do what God wanted her to do. Here's the implication for us. Know your place. Know your stewardship. Providence and stewardship go hand in hand. If you exercise wise stewardship, you will receive a reward. If not, you will suffer loss. Either way, God's plan remains unhindered. Who knows? Perhaps you are where you are for such a time as this. Have you considered that?
That is what Mordecai is saying to Esther or attempting to communicate to Esther. Perhaps you are in this exact place to do what nobody else can do. After all, there's only one queen. I'm not a queen. Neither any of the Jew here can do what you do. Same for us. God placed you exactly where He wants you to be, whether you know it or not. If you are unclear of your place, seek the Lord. After all, it's the Lord's deployment, right? So seek the Lord. Wait on Him patiently. Spend time with Him. Lord, what is it? Where's my place? What is it that you want me to do for you? Listen to Him. Take extended time to listen. In the meantime, what the Lord has given you to do, save him, serve Him faithfully where you are. In the meantime, if you're still unsure, serve. Start to serve. Don't have to wait. Okay, I'm not sure exactly where it is that God wants me to be, but you know what? There's an opportunity here. Let me serve there while I wait to hear from Him my permanent placement. There's a lot of opportunities to serve in church. If only you were to ask, approach the ministry leaders. So here's my question to you. How are you stewarding the place God has given you? How are you stewarding the resources that God has given you? Thirdly, there is presence and power. As you diligently prepare yourself and faithfully steward your place, God's presence and power will be evident in your life. The Jews on that day took up the sword and they gained the victory. They didn't fold their arms, you know. Oh, we are winning already. Ah. No need to do anything. They took up the sword and struck down their enemies and gained the victory the presence and power of God. You know, if I were to pose this question, what evidences of divine providence do you see in the book of Esther? I, I believe many of you have done this exercise. What evidences of divine providence do you see in the book of Esther? I'll probably get a long list. Much of them will come by way of hindsight, Right? We read the story on hindsight and we begin to see evidences of the hand of God, even though God is not mentioned in the book of Esther. Oh, it so happened Vashti was deposed. So happened Esther was made queen. So happened that Mordecai overheard the plot. So happened the king had a sleepless night. And on and on and on and on and on. A long list of them. Much of them will come by way of hindsight. And people say hindsight is twenty twenty. What seems improbable, coincidental, unusual, hindsight supplemented by reflective meditation of Scripture trains us to recognize in this ordinary events the presence and power of God. That is what we do when we read the book of Esther. That is why we see God everywhere. Because we have been trained to recognize it. Hindsight shapes insight and foresight. God's presence and power seen in yesterday's ordinary events, hindsight, encourages us to see the same working on our behalf today, insight and forever, foresight. That is why Christians coming away well-equipped in the Word of God with the hindsight. The war is already won. Jesus is greater. The one in me is greater than the one in the world. We are more than conquerors. Hindsight. 
we step forward courageously today. With insight, we act. And then with foresight, we plan. God is unmentioned in the book of Esther, but He isn't absent. There is presence and power still at work. Yes, even today, even right now as you are listening to the Word of God. Do you see clearly God's presence and power in your life? Do you recognize His presence and power in your life? Or do you always wring your hand in panic? Die la, die la, die la. Or will you go about life calmly, even though you are faced or you are dropped in the midst of very difficult situation? Because the presence and power of God is real. That's what the book of Esther teaches us. You don't see it, it's real. I can't really touch it, it's there. The war is already won. Yet, the war must still be waged. We are fighting against Satan, sin and self. What is needed in the fight is good preparation, faithful stewarding of place and the presence and power of God. And let me conclude with these words. May this be true for each of you. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7 and 8. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, and not to me only, but also to all who love His appearing. Let us pray. Thanks be to you, O Lord, for your counter-edict of life. All of us, O Lord, face the wages of sin, death. It is an irrevocable decree upon the entire human race. But praise be to you, O Lord, for you pronounce the counter-edict of life that in Jesus Christ we now have eternal life. In Jesus Christ we now have the victory. In Jesus Christ we are more than conquerors. In Jesus Christ the war is already won. Yet, Lord, all of us know we still need to put on the armour of God. We still, not, we still ought to carry on our very hands the sword of the Spirit and take up the shield of faith because there is better still to be fought in our lives. Each one of us perhaps a different battle, but nevertheless, there are battles to fight. Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters here. I pray, O oh Lord, that through the book of Esther, you'll bring them to realize that, Lord, you are present, not absent. You are there for them, you are with them. And because you are for them and with them, they will be victorious. Help them take courage, O Lord, regardless of the trials, the tribulations they may be facing right this very moment. Help them realize that the war is already won. And as they are fighting in the battles that you have placed them in, they are fighting for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Help them fight the good fight. 
Help them finish the race. Help them keep the faith so that, Lord, on that day when you reward your faithful stewards and servants, they may receive from you the crown of life and the crown of righteousness. So we give you thanks. We give you praise that you wear the victor's crown. In your name we pray. Amen.